This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Got to ask you a question. Um, do you live in a big story? What's your big story that you live in? Do you have a big story? Or do you just like have a small story? Well, we all have a big story. And my big story um, is connected to my family, to my community, to the generations that have followed me, preceded me rather, and those that will follow me, um, my friends, my city, um, my political story, my cultural story. So if I was to describe to you my story, and yours would be different, and by the way, let me just say this, valuing my own big story, valuing your big story, doesn't mean that you think it's any better than anyone else's, okay? I just want to lay some ground rules here, like don't for a minute think that I'm suggesting that my story is better than anyone else's story. Uh, but, uh, and it also, just because I have a big story, it uh, doesn't mean that big story is all good. And, uh, and, and has, has benefited everyone, all right? So just want to kind of, kind of put some ground rules in there. So my big story is this, I'm British, I'm European, I'm proud European, I'm Christian, I'm socio-democratic, liberal, straddling the 20th and 21st centuries, a story that values now inclusivity, diversity, equality, meritocracy, responsibility, kindness, generosity, justice, redemption, faith, hope, and love. Those are some of the values that, the, of the story that I live in. And as you know, that big story extends back to Celtic and Anglo-Saxon roots. I think I have more Celtic in me than Anglo-Saxon, um, and is steeped in the European Christian story over the last 2,000 years. So that's my big story. What's your big story? Why don't you take a moment and just think about your big story, and then turn to the person next to you and just tell them what your big story is. So how'd you go? We were just saying, Steve and I were just saying how it's easy to not pass on your traditions to your children. Uh, if you have children and your grandchildren, and whether you actually pass on those traditions, those histories, those stories from one generation to the next, or do you just live in the present? And how does that, how does that affect you? Well, one of the stories, I mean, I always uh, talk to my children and I say, I say, look, you need to understand, culturally we're Christians, um, but the word Christian means a lot of different things to different people. So it's probably easier just to talk about like, just being a human being. Like, like, be a human being first, right? But that doesn't mean you forget your, your, your heritage, doesn't forget, it means you don't forget, you know, the generations that have preceded you because they can bring life, they can bring pain, of course, to us, but they can also bring life to us and give us a sense of purpose and positioning in life as well. And I want to today talk about the, <clears throat> the story of Jesus because the story of Jesus, which of course is a Palestinian Jewish story, um, you know, it's not a Christian story, it's a Palestinian Jewish story about a Jew who lived in Palestine. And this story roots many of your stories, even if ethnically there's no connection there. You may not be a Jew, you may not be a Palestinian, but you are connected to this story. And as we pass through the year, we touch on traditions that enable us to reflect on our heritage and our connection to this man called Jesus. And uh, today we are starting Advent, and of course this is, as Joel said just now, an important, uh, an important tradition that we have in our Western European Christian society where we remember who Jesus was and how he was born and how his birth came to happen. So we're going to read today from Matthew 1, verses 18, 23. And just to say, um, do um, uh, follow uh, Seven on uh, social media and get those Advent calendar um, 
uh, doors. Uh, what do you call them? Windows. Windows. We did ours on, uh, did you get ours? No, oh, well, you're just going to hear an extended version of that. <laughs> but no, seriously, though, like, they're just good fun. And, uh, you know, you'll enjoy uh, kind of marking the Advent period by opening those every day. So Matthew 1, 18, 23. If you've got a Bible with you, some of you I know bring your Bibles. Flop it open in your hand. Open the app. And it says this in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, this part of the story, uh, or the nativity, um, which is the term we tend to give to this part of the Bible, um, actually is unusual because it focuses on the role of Joseph uh, and not Mary. This is all about Joseph, and it's all from Joseph's perspective. And, um, you know, we we need to recognise, of course, that Mary rightly deserves all of the kudos for giving birth to Jesus. Joseph literally did nothing. Um, So, you know, credit to to Mary for that. Uh, But notice that uh, Matthew, who wrote this account, has just recorded the ancestors of Jesus in a genealogy that appears to be Joseph's line. So you get two genealogies, of course. Like, you know, I've got my genealogy, Claire's got her genealogy. Okay, but in this case... Um, Matthew has recorded the genealogy of Joseph and this genealogy of Joseph is designed to demonstrate that this baby Jesus is related to all of the ancestors that preceded Joseph and that would include David, Judah, Jacob, Isaac and Abraham. If you're familiar with those names you'll know that King David was the greatest of the Jewish kings, Judah the greatest of the of the tribes of Israel and from where we get the term Jews. Um, Jacob, Isaac and Abraham you'll know as, the, uh, as the, uh, the ancestors, the forefathers if you like, of this Jewish family. So Matthew's putting Jesus right in the Jewish story and connecting him to the royal family. That's really important to recognise. Now what's also important to recognise is that Matthew has placed Joseph as the focal point of attention here as Jesus' father. But of course we know that he wasn't his birth father because we know that the conception of Jesus was a miracle, it says in the Bible, and that the Holy Spirit, Matthew says, made Mary pregnant with the baby Jesus. So Joseph, therefore, adopted Jesus. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus. Shout out to anyone that's fostering or adopting children at the moment in our society, which is a massive need. And if you're interested in knowing more about that, you should talk to Anna Simmons, and she will connect you in and, uh, to tell you how you can do that. Um, even the divine conception of Jesus here is related to Joseph, not Mary. Now, 
That's not that surprising. Um, honestly, uh, when I reflect on the birth of our three children, I have three children, I could tell you all about it. I could tell you all about what happened, how I got to hold Jake for the first time because Claire was dying on the bed in front of me. Though you saved her, don't worry, she's fine now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, how I got to uh, pass Daniel to Claire when, when he was born and, and how we held me, uh, Millie and we cuddled her. You know, I could tell you all from my perspective. Now, if you've asked Claire about the birth of our children, you will wonder if I was there. <laughs> because the experience was much more intense for her. All right, and so I think in this situation, you know, I, th I just think Matthew is talking to Joseph, and I think Luke, who is, you know, writes the other account of the birth of Jesus, was talking to Mary. I think that's how it was. Anyway, we've got Joseph's account here, and it's clear that Matthew has no doubt in his mind that Joseph was not involved in the conception of this baby. Matthew says, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So a bit of explanation here. In Jewish society, a couple would first be betrothed to each other. That's the word betrothed, not engaged, betrothed. This was legally binding, like marriage in our society is legally binding. Engagement isn't, is it? If you engage, you can break it off and there's no legal papers to file or whatever. But in Jewish society, it was legally binding. And betrothal usually lasted about a year, during which the woman stayed in her father's house. Deliberate emphasis on fathers there because it was a patriarchal society. She stayed in her father's house for a year, whilst the man went and built an extension on his father's house. Literally built an extension. And so that that extension was where this new couple would then live. Once the extension was built, the betrothal would end with a ceremony a wedding during which the man would take his new wife to the home extension and live in it. And if you're familiar with that, uh, that, that is quite a, a common occurrence in a traditional society where multiple generations live in the same home together. Having visited, the best example I've got is a uh, visiting Borja Barajne, which is a Palestinian refugee camp in Beirut. And um, it's a refugee camp and it, it's it's basically one generation lives on one level and the next generation lives on the next and the next generation lives on the next and it just builds up and up and up. There's about five generations. There comes a, a, you know, a tipping point where the next generation dies and then everyone moves down a level. But that's generally what happens and this is what was happening here. So he's betrothed to Mary and he's building the extension on the house and then what happens is there's this discovery that Mary is pregnant. Now, that wasn't the done thing. And in fact, I think we see some of the Christian attitude towards sex before marriage in the Jewish betrothal uh, tradition. Um, but what you can hear is the, perhaps the anger and the confusion that was in Joseph's mind when he found out that his wife was pregnant. Because of course his first thought was not, oh, it's an immaculate conception. His first thought was this woman's just been adulterous. His first thought was, why has she done this to me? His first thought was, I need to divorce her. Like, that was his first thought. So when Matthew writes uh, what happens and what convinced Joseph to think that that wasn't the case, it was going to take something big to convince him otherwise, wasn't it? Because, guys, let's face it, if your wife did the same thing and you knew you weren't the father, you would be asking serious questions 
you would have a serious breach of trust. You would have a lot of suspicion, right? You're, I mean, is anyone here who's first thought, oh, well, a miraculous conception? No, I don't think so. And it wouldn't have been for Joseph either. So Joseph is really hacked off, very angry, trust is broken, and then he has a dream. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph tells Matthew that he had this weird dream, where this angel of the Lord, he says, appears to him in the dream and explains to him that Mary is still a virgin and that she has not been unfaithful to him. As an aside, by the way, last weekend we were celebrating my son's 18th birthday at a party. Uh, not a party, at a restaurant rather. But there was a party going on at that restaurant in another sort of divided room and there was an absolute cacophony of noise going on. And afterwards I realised it was a gender reveal party. Who knew? I would have thought it was like an 18th party, the amount of noise that was coming out of there, but a gender reveal party, what a great idea. We never did that ourselves, but Joseph's gender reveal was an angel of the Lord appearing to him in a dream, telling him that he was going to have a son, because that would have been the first time that they realised what the gender was of this baby, because they didn't have scans in those days. I don't think they did, Emma, did they? No. Emma's a sonographer. Um, so... Notice a couple of things here. First of all, according to Joseph, the angel addressed him as Joseph, son of David. Now, it might have been that Matthew added that, we don't know. But the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Matthew is clearly showing his readers that Jesus would have the legal status of being adopted into the line of the great King David. It's really important that we know that. The second thing that uh, happens is the angel tells Joseph to call this baby Jesus which is actually the Greek version of a Hebrew name, Joshua, although we know him as Jesus. Really, we might think of him as Jeshua or Joshua, which is the Hebrew name. And it meant Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the name that the Jews gave to God. So the angel says, call this baby Yahweh is salvation because, Matthew says, this baby will save people from their sins. Now, we need to just take off our glasses, Christian glasses, for a moment, because you've been told that saving from sins is all about your own personal sins. In this context, it's not. Okay, and let me explain why. We need to remember that the nation of Israel has existed for, in some form, prior to Jesus, for 1,500 years. This is an ancient civilization, 3,500 years old. 3,500 years old, the Jewish story. Unbelievable. And, 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 you know, talk about heritage. The Israelites have survived as an identifiable tribe because they've got traditions, they've got culture, and because they have a legal code that was established in the time of Moses. Whether it was Moses himself or Moses and his, and his council of elders, it would have been somewhere along that line they have a legal code. They're a nation, in other words. They're one of the earliest nations that we know of in history. They have a legal code to decide what's right and what's wrong and, and basically separate society from anarchy. Okay, this is a well-established, mature nation. But things have not gone well for these Israelites, okay? Things have not gone well. And as is quite common in human nature, when things don't go well, I don't know if you feel like this, you feel like you've done something wrong. Like the world's going against you because you're not doing something right. 
God's angry with you, maybe you feel like that, I don't know. And you think, oh, you know, I'm sinning, so therefore things aren't going right in my life. You know, I've lied to that person and therefore quid pro quo, things are going badly in my life. Okay, it's human nature, isn't it, to think that if things are going badly for you, then you've done something wrong or the gods are angry with you. And if things are going well for you, then the gods are blessing you, right? Is that not a common thought? It's a common thought that I see in my own life and I recognize it in the lives of, of countless people across the world. Stories, religious stories, cultural stories that you've seen, it, it happens. And of course, that's exactly what the Israelites thought. They thought that if you break the law, then things will go badly for you. If you keep the law, then God will bless you. I don't think we, I think we realize it's not quite as simple as that, right? But uh, that, that pervasive kind of idea um, meant that the poor Israelites, well, they often thought things were going badly for them because they were. Now, I just want to explain a little bit of history to you because I'm a bit of a history geek, so forgive me, but just let me just, let me just tell you this because it's really important. This is a combination of geography and history. Now, I'm a geography graduate, and I know that little bit of land that we call Israel or Palestine now is a little bit of a land bridge between three continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And in the days before aeroplanes, you would travel through that piece of land if you wanted to go to Africa, to Asia, or to Europe, and vice versa, okay? It was a very, very important piece of land. And whoever controlled that piece of land had a big influence on the way in which those cultures and peoples from those different continents moved around. Is it any wonder that this piece of land was invaded by power-hungry empires throughout its history? So when we look back at this piece of land, we realize that it was conquered, I mean, let's just go to back to the mid-history, by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And at the time of Jesus, it was the Romans that were the dominant empire. It's no wonder that the Jews thought that they were always in the bad books with God because they were always getting invaded. But for 1,500 years, this tiny nation, and I mean tiny nation, clung faithfully to Yahweh and to their legal code given by Moses, longing for deliverance, longing for deliverance. Their whole story is about deliverance. The word deliverance, if you're an evangelical Christian, you might think about someone frothing at the mouth and rolling around on the floor. For the Jews, it wasn't that. It was deliverance from powerful nations and armies that seek to dominate and impose their will upon them. So is it a wonder that the story of the Jews is one of reaching out to God and crying out for salvation? And so when we read this account uh, that Matthew is writing, it's into that context that he is writing. So Jesus was born into a period, and I, I've said this before, and I want, I want, I'd love to just emphasize this. It's my conviction that the time that Jesus was born into was the, uh, such a tumultuous time. It was a time of great, great suffering. I've read, this morning I read the leader, on, uh, head, the leader article on the Times explaining what actually happened when the Hamas terrorists uh, killed 2,500 people only months ago. It's horrific. And what's happening now with Israel bombing uh, Palestinians as well is horrific. But these times were worse than that. This, 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 Israel was clinging by its fingertips to its existence. Like, if you don't take my word for it, take Tom Holland, the famous historian who has written several books on this period. It was a tumultuous, difficult time that Jesus was born into. The Jews were longing for a savior, longing for a savior, someone to release them from this terrible time of suffering. 
And when Matthew reports that the angel said that this Jesus would save people from their sins, he was talking about Yahweh swooping in and rescuing these Israelites. This phrase, saving people from their sins, was an enduring part of the hope of the Jewish people. You see, whenever they broke the law of Moses, they would call it transgression. Another word for transgression is sin. In other words, when they sinned and broke the legal code, they were breaking the law, committing a crime. And because they believed that, to some extent, that their, the situation they were in was directly related to their behavior in regards to the legal code of Moses, it's not a surprise when Matthew says, this Jesus will save people from their sins. It means that Jesus will come and save the Israelite people from the consequences of their actions. This was part of the enduring hope of the Jewish people, that God would send a Messiah. And to drive his point home, Matthew says that the birth of Jesus fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 7. Now, Isaiah was one of these Jewish prophets. Um, and um, I want to draw your attention to the radio for pause for the thought uh, uh, on the Today programme. If you don't listen to that, I'm usually driving through hot wells when it comes on the radio, so I listen to it most days. And there was a brilliant one this week. Um, uh, and uh, I just want to reflect on it because it was about what a prophet is. A prophet is someone that reflects on the times that they're living in and speaks about those times to the people. Now, Isaiah lived, uh, we don't know exactly, six or 700 years before the time of Jesus, another time, another time of great pressure on the Jewish nation when the Babylonians were oppressing and wanting this piece of land that we talked about, right? So another time of great suffering. And Isaiah speaks in that time and says, this this is what is happening. In fact, this pause for the thought was about Paul Lynch's um, Booker Prize um, uh, win this week, um, which is all about a dystopian uh, present, talking about it as being uh, something about the present which in informs our future. And, and she was saying, this, this, this reflector on pause for the thought was saying, this is what a prophet does. A prophet says, this is what's happening now, but this is what we need to learn about it for the future. And this is who Isaiah was. Isaiah was a prophet. He was speaking about a dystopia. And Isaiah, 700 years, Matthew takes the words of Isaiah and says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, Matthew was taking this quote from Isaiah, which was 700 years old, and saying, this Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, that sounds quite an outlandish thing to say, doesn't it? I mean, you know, that would be a weird thing for me to say to you. I've had a baby and it's God with us. It's God in the flesh. You would think I would start raving bonkers if I said that. But that's what they're saying here. That's what Matthew's saying here. But you know what? This was, the, my, whilst that might sound outlandish to us, it wasn't outlandish to the Jews at the time. Because prior to Jesus, leaders had emerged who they thought were the fulfillment of messianic prophecies. In fact, the word mess, messiah is the English word, mashiach, in Hebrew, means anointed. It means touched by God, touched by the Spirit of God, one who is spiritually touched by God. And, and in fact, some scholars would argue that any priest, prophet, or king was a Messiah figure, I, in other words, anointed by God. And then prior to Jesus, in these tumultuous times when the Romans were, de were deeply impressing their will upon this little bit of land and this little nation, what happened was that there were people who were revolutionary leaders that kind of stood up to lead the Jews in revolt against the oppressive forces, and they were thought of as messiahs as well. So the idea that Jesus was a messiah was, was not kind of 
without its context, there was lots of people being identified as messiahs. So to the Jews, it would have been, oh, a messiah, this is another messiah. This one is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, that he'll be known as God with us, and that God would come and rescue the Jews from the suffering that they were experiencing. So it wasn't, to, Jew, to the Jewish audience of Matthew, it wouldn't have been outlandish for them, him to claim that this baby born to Mary could be the messiah. So, Matthew's only got this from Joseph. Joseph wakes from the dream and goes and does exactly what the angel of the Lord has told him. Now, it's interesting to note that um, Matthew records Joseph as having three other dreams where the angel of the Lord speaks to him. One in, uh, in Matthew 2.13, where Joseph is instructed to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt because his life is under threat from um, Herod. And another where the angel tells him that Herod's died and now it's safe for him to return to Nazareth from Egypt. So clearly Joseph, Joseph is a man who encounters the angel of the Lord, which is a messenger from God in dreams, which is really interesting. Again, that wouldn't have seemed outlandish to the people that were listening to this talk because they believed that God did speak to people through dreams and through angels. And in fact, the Old Testament is full of stories about angels interacting with human beings. I don't, has anyone ever, does anyone think they've ever seen an angel? Don't be shy if you have, I think I have. Is anyone else? Yeah, two, just two of us in the room. Now this angel did not look like an angelic being to me. I was climbing a mountain in, in Wales. Um, we didn't know where to go, I was with my friend Ian and, and we literally lost our way. Our lives were slightly in danger. And then suddenly these two people turned up and said, oh, this is the way you wanna go. And we went up the hill, up through this cleft in this rocks, got to the top and then these people disappeared. Not like they didn't go ping like that. But literally, one moment they were with us and the next moment they'd gone. And uh, Ian and I, to this day, still think that they were angels. So they were ordinary people with kind of regatta coats on and stuff like that. <laughs> but, but the point is, the point is, is that angels are very much part of the Jewish uh, cultural landscape. So it's really important to recognize that this, this, was, this was something that was very profound and meaningful for the uh, Matthew's Jewish audience. So back to where we started, Joseph. I think this story is about trust. It's about Joseph trusting in his heritage and in his story, his big story, that this kind of thing can happen. I mean, it would have blown his mind otherwise, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. Your wife's pregnant and it's conceived by the Holy Spirit and you have a dream to confirm it. It's like, this was a man steeped in his, in his big story. Why should we connect with our big story? Well, because God might want to speak to us through our big story. Why should we connect with our big story? Because our big story does shape who we are and we'd be pretending if we didn't think that. We are more a product of our culture and of our big story that we live in than we like to accept. I, I often get annoyed with Christians who, oh, we are not part of the world. I'm like, well, what world are you part of then? Like, you were born in Bristol, you live in Bristol, or wherever you are. What is, what is it about you wanting to separate yourself off from the world that God has placed you in? You live in this place. You have this story. Of course, not all of it is good. Some of it will be painful. There's understandable reasons why we want to escape that. But we are part of a story that God has placed us in. So the first thing is, do we trust the story that God has placed us in? Do we love the family that God has placed us in? Do we love the community that God has placed us in? Are we committed to that? Because Joseph was, because, and that enabled him to receive what God was saying to him. Second thing is Joseph trusted his wife. Frankly, it would have been pretty hard to trust your wife 
if she said that to you. Guys, uh, I mean, I, you know, we can't obviously reverse it because men can't get pregnant. So just for a moment, guys, you would find it hard, right, to trust your wife if she became pregnant and she insisted that the Holy Spirit had made her pregnant. I mean, am I just kind of the only guy here that would find that hard? It would be hard to believe it, wouldn't it? And it would be hard to trust. So Joseph trusts. I mean, he's very lucky because he has an angelic visitation in a dream which tells him, you need to trust your wife. But there probably would have been still some doubt in his mind. Which is why, I think it's the BBC, um, what do you call it, a nativity story. Joseph's quite mean to Mary. Have you ever noticed that one? Has anyone ever watched that? If you haven't, then go and find it on, on iPlayer or something. It's very good. But Joseph's actually quite mean, and I think we can understand why he's quite mean, because actually he's really struggling with this. But Joseph nevertheless trusts Mary. And then I think the third point of trust is that God, Yahweh, chose this, this young couple, this young peasant couple from an obscure village in the middle of Palestine to, um, to raise this baby who would be the saviour of the world. I mean... You know, that's some trust. And I think it, it kind of, you know, you might say, well, that's a slightly esoteric point. It might be, but the, the, the application of that is, does, do we realise how much God trusts us with all that he's given us? Does God trust, God trust you with all that God has given you? I mean, that, for some of you, that will be a little bit too removed from reality. But what you have, God has given you. Can you honour the, the trust that God has placed in you? Whatever you have, or whatever you don't have. So I've got three questions just for us to reflect on. How much do we trust God? And I, I was struggling for words here, but to light the way for us, to provide for us, to shelter us, to care for us, to inspire us. Second question is, how much do we trust those we love? Because if we're willing to trust, then we can be vulnerable and be truly ourselves with them. But if we aren't willing to trust them, then we cannot feel connected. And for those of us that feel lonely, the answer is to trust someone and be vulnerable with them. That's the only answer. And if you've been hurt and you've been damaged because of the people have, have wounded you, then you need God's help to trust again so that you can feel connected and not isolated and not lonely. And the third reflection is, how much trust does Jesus put in us to be ourselves and to join in with what God is doing in our lives and in our community? Let's just reflect for a minute on those questions or anything else that has been triggered by what I've said today.